Dr. Angela Hardin is back on the Herbal Hour podcast. And with no uh, preliminary conversation to start, we're just jumping straight in. So <laughs> we're just going for it. <laughs> Dr. Hardin, how are you doing today? Pretty good. How are you? Pretty good. Yeah. Um, I've been uh, realizing a lot how the mind interferes with life, how either thinking good things or thinking bad things about what's happening both interfere from the experience of life. Totally. We get in our own way all the time. Mm-hmm. So um, we're talking today a little bit about uh, the mystical realms again. Mm-hmm. And a topic that I wanted to touch on a little bit that you brought up as well is energy vampires. Mm-hmm. Right. So what is that in your view? Because I have my own kind of view yeah. of it psychologically, what that could mean and whether it's like an actual literal thing. What's your take on that? Yeah, so this has been an interesting thing for me to think about, um, especially sort of I'm applying it now to my life sort of in the context of being a healthcare provider where you interface with all kinds of people um, and patients. But as I've started to learn what that looks like um, from a healthcare provider's perspective, I also realize looking back on my life, what kinds of people kind of drain your energy, whether or not that's their intention. So, um, and and how does an energy vampire, and we'll talk a little bit bit about what that is or what Mm. that can look like or what what types of people might be doing this. Um, But also how how do those types of people affect really highly sensitive people like empaths. So I wanted to bring that into the conversation specifically because I think that a lot of us who go into healthcare, um, we are, we can be highly sensitive people. We can, we have typically a goal to uh, serve humanity, to connect with people, to uh, understand somebody's suffering. And a lot of times um, we put ourselves in, of course, you know, the patient is in a vulnerable situation sharing those things with us, uh, but we can also be very vulnerable to that person's suffering and maybe even taking on their suffering. And so, mm-hmm. you know, that's sort of talking about it in this container of healthcare and the doctor-patient relationship but certainly we can expand that to all of life. Um, and I just realizing over the years um, of my life, how highly sensitive I am and, and arguably have become more sensitive uh, with time and sort of tying it back to the intuitive intuition piece that we were talking about in our first, in part one, of our conversation, um, you know, an empath is typically a highly sensitive person and typically is somebody who you might think of as being highly intuitive. So mm-hmm. they're very, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, they're tuned in. They may be picking up on things, aspects, um, feelings, uh, suffering in another person mm. without that person 
verbally communicating that to them. So something about the empath or the the highly sensitive person, the intuitive person. And I don't mean highly sensitive in the sense that their feelings are hurt easily, mm. but rather somebody who, uh, without having to either see with their own eyes or hear or um, you know, using something other than their five senses. And mm. we talked a little bit about sort of distinguishing sen sensation or sensory from intuition. And theoretically, those two things are opposite. But I like to think of them as maybe just intuition being a little bit more expanded sens sensation or sensory. Mm. Not that it's necessarily different, but you know, we live in such a tangible world in a material world. So we need, many of us need sort of validation that things are true through being able to touch them, being able to see them to prove that they exist. But yeah. sometimes yeah. you just, you just sense something else about uh, that might be going on with a person. You might all of a sudden take on that person's symptoms by being in a room with them and just being open or having poor boundaries or, you know, for all sorts of reasons, you mm. may, as a highly sensitive person or a, or a, an intuitive person or an empath, whatever label you want to put on it, um, may start to almost have a sense of more than you want to know. Um, you know, sometimes these messages or these feelings don't necessarily come through when we are asking for them or, or at least consciously uh, ready to take that on or are ready to know what to do with that information. Uh, but we, we go into sort of a healing space. We go into the room with a patient or we go into a social situation or it might be with, you know, a family member or whatever it is. We, maybe we see someone on the street and we, we feel for that person. We want to help them. That is our, that is our sort of natural inclination. We, you might call it a bleeding heart um, or you know, a humanitarian. Those types of people tend to be empaths. Mm. So they feel very deeply. It doesn't mean they're like weak. It doesn't mean they're you know, easily offended, like I said earlier. It's, it's that they feel very deeply. And the challenge here is that, you know, we can take on suffering of another and have a difficulty distinguishing where do we end and this other person begins in an in, um, as far as an energetic field from that standpoint. Um, and that can make the water very muddy. So... Mm. I sort of wanted to dive into that a little bit because, you know, it's, it's so relevant as, as healthcare providers and healers, regardless of what type of provider you are, if you're going to work closely with an individual um, with the goal to help them through something, whether it's a physical health ailment, an emotional, uh, mental health, uh, support that they need, whether it is not even your job, but you are sort of that person in your family that everybody comes to asking for help, or 
you are that person in your group of friends, or you, you might be dealing with difficulty in, in the workplace. Um, but let's expand it even bigger to look what's going on with, at least in our country, and how things have become so uh, ramped up over the last several months. And um, there, of course, is, you know, the highly sensitive person, the empath wants so much to, to show love, to help, and yet can feel very uh, drained very quickly from um, sort of being exposed to, you know, outright hate, outright racism. You know, we can expand it to like what's going on around us now. Um, we, we want to do something and yet we feel paralyzed with, we may feel paralyzed by how upset, deeply upsetting it is. And I think that everybody is being affected in some way by what is happening in our world right now. Um, a lot has been stirred up, but certainly everybody's going to react and act differently in response to this. But I think it's important that those of us who are highly sensitive, um, and I just say us because I include myself in that statement, and you mm -hmm. know maybe some of the listeners can relate to that, um, is you know sort of helping and advocating and supporting others can look like many different things. And we also need to take care of ourselves so that we don't make ourselves sick from how deeply we are feeling the pain of the world. Mm. Um, so what do you think about all that? Do you have yeah, a like lot of, you yeah. brought up a lot of really good points. One yeah. thing that I was um, thinking of that got brought up to me, which is very empowering in a sense um, from uh a healer's perspective. So there's this idea that when you sit and you listen to someone's problems that, you know, you kind of take them onto yourself and they kind of, you know, weigh you down, uh, they make you upset, et cetera. So there's this cliche of the psychiatrist is depressed because all they do is see depressed patients. There was a big insight I heard from a clinical psychologist. What he said is that when you're a physician and a patient is in front of you, there's a fundamental difference from those kind of what might be called energetic uh, vampirism of somebody you know, where they just unleash all their problems, they just vent to you. Mm -hmm. um, the key difference between those two uh, scenarios is the patient in a lot of cases actually wants to be helped. So they're venting all the problems, but they're doing it with the mind of, well, what do you think? You know, I'm in this terrible situation. This is what's happening. Uh, how can I get out of it? Whereas the more draining kind of relationship to be in with someone is someone who is constantly complaining, but they actually don't want to solve their problems at all. And that's not even what they're seeking from you. Mm -hmm. That is what seems to drain the life very quickly. And I'm sure you know people like that. That's a really good distinction. Um, and I do want to come back to the energy vampire piece because, you know, I talked a little bit more about the empath piece and the highly sensitive person piece, and we can certainly expand on both, but I do want to come back to what you're saying because it's very essential to understand that, yes, it is about what is the intention of that individual um, who is 
you know, maybe it's, it's important for us as healthcare providers to make this distinction as well, because certainly, um, you know, I do believe that every human, um, deserves medical care and healthcare and access to that. And there are many patients and many of them that we see in our profession who have been sort of, for lack of a better word or a better term, um, they've been let down by the healthcare system. And somewhere along the line, you know, maybe this is someone with a chronic uh, illness and a complex medical history, and they've been let down by the medical system. And maybe that's been the conventional system just because the doctors don't have enough time to give them in a visit and they need a lot of attention. And somewhere along the line, someone called them a difficult patient. Mm -hmm. That is sort of how they lump. And I've done it. I'm guilty of doing that. I have patients that I have called difficult. And um, on the one hand, that's not fair for me to say, but I like the distinction that you made because, um, and I'm not saying that we need to deny healthcare to anybody, right? Mm -hmm. That's sort of part of our oath that we take as a physician. We don't deny access to care. Um, and if we, if we were to try to fire, get a patient fired from being our patient, there are steps you must go through so that that can happen. Mm. You can't refuse to see somebody unless certain things have occurred. And we don't have to get into what that is. But, you know, there's, as a provider, we sort of have a duty. Um, yes, there are certain patients that are better suited for certain providers, 100%. It's important that a patient is able to work with a provider that they feel drawn to, they have a connection with, they feel heard. There's a therapeutic relationship. But I like what you said because in the instance where the patient or the energy vampire um, is not acting with the intent of making themselves better or adding something positive to the, the relationship, it is no longer a therapeutic relationship. So mm. we talk about doctor and patient relationship and and the understanding that we should be as as physicians we should engage in a therapeutic relationship with our patient and that doesn't just mean that the doctor provides care mm. right so it is a two-way street you have to and, sympathize with the patient to some degree but otherwise you can't really meet them where they are mm -hmm. like for example i had a patient who had very severe uh, kind of end-stage liver cancer. And I really allowed myself to feel, what would it feel like to be coming to the doctor looking for an alternate option for something that other doctors are telling you you have maybe six months to live yeah. from a year? And feeling that is very distressing, actually. And it really puts you in your place like nothing else possibly can as uh, as a healer of any sense because it it puts you in front of a problem that you just aren't experiencing now, mm -hmm. but it's a fundamental human problem. And I think that's what makes it so interesting. And what you say about the difficult patient, I also like that. Mm -hmm. 
So there's the difficult patient and then there's the energetic vampire, which is actually the impossible patient because they don't want to be helped. So it doesn't matter if you try to. And that's actually interesting. Um, that's the basis of some portion of romantic relationships. And that is exactly where I wanted to go with this because we can put all of this in the bubble and say, yes, as a doctor, as a future doctor, you have a duty to your patient. And it's sort of like, in, in a sense, your patient has to sort of fail to act in a certain accordance um, in order to not be your patient anymore. Um, and yet, we don't need to have that same duty to someone else if we are not talking about the doctor-patient relationship. And mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that in a doctor-patient relationship that the physician has to suffer through a difficult patient. Um, there are ways to put up boundaries, uh, you know, either by ways of communicating with the patient, um, energetic boundaries, which we can also talk about, um, even body language. There's a lot of subtleties, and I, I urge us all to fi- find out whatever that looks like for us, for us as individuals, and use the use those practices in between every patient if you can, um, because at the end of at the end of a work day, you end up carrying a lot of that shit home with you, mm-hmm. and you end up coming home and you're like, man, I've only seen a few patients today, and I can barely function. And I've had a lot of those days, especially when I was a student doing clinical rotations and seeing patients. And I was just like that bleeding heart, like, oh, I want to see the good in everybody, right? I want to help them so bad. I want to dive in and do all of this. I'm so excited for the bright eye, bushy-tailed. Well, it only took a year or so for me to realize that's not sustainable. It doesn't mean that I put up a wall and don't let anybody mm. in. But we have to, through trial and error, kind of figure out where our boundary is, where we can still have that connection and figure out Mm. what do those boundaries look like for you? But, and we can go back to that because I want to talk more about how to establish those boundaries and how they can look different. But with the romantic thing that you bring up or just the, the social aspect, we don't have a duty Unless maybe they're your family member and then you're kind of SOL, <laughs> you got to deal with them or you don't and you, and you're estranged from family members and that's a really difficult thing in and of itself. And I wouldn't mm-hmm. wish that upon anybody, but I understand that sometimes family members are become at odds. They can't, what one or both members of the party can't deal with the other and people, you know, even families are torn apart. I I don't like that as, you know, sort of the, that end result, but you can't fault people for having to take space when they need it. That's their own version of a boundary. Mm-hmm. Maybe they'll work through it at, if at some point if they can. Um, but when it comes to choosing partners, choosing friendships, choosing even as as, you know, sort of, distilled down as choosing your your battles right choosing 
um, what types of conversations you choose to engage in when you do have that choice to bow out or not. Sometimes you're in a conversation with somebody and you can't get out of it. You can't just walk away, but you can choose, you know, how you respond, of course. Um, and I don't know, when I think of energy vampire, I think of, um, there's a newer show that's, I think, based on a movie. I never saw the movie, but the show is What We Do in the Shadows. And it's like a parody about vampires. It's a comedy, a sort of a, a dark comedy. And one of the characters, so like, you know, there's three vampires that go around doing vampire things. And then the other character is an energy vampire, which is hilarious because he walks into a room. He has a super flat affect, a very dull personality. And his superpower Classic. is to walk into a room and just sap it of its energy. Drain the energy <laughs> from everybody in that wow. room by talking about whatever BS. I think we call that a wet blanket <laughs> in slang terms. Someone just comes in and it's just and then you killing the vibe, and man. This guy, What's up and with this you? Guys today? going on and on about whatever, some spreadsheet, some some commercial he saw, some way he irons his stocks, plan, like stocks. <laughs> shit no one cares about, and you see everyone else in the room, and they're struggling to stay awake, and he's just he's loving it. Yeah, he's and they're they're listening only out of politeness. They're just like grows, yeah. <laughs> And right. he grows stronger and stronger as they get weaker and weaker. So that is like, that's sort of like, think of that, you know, caricature. And um, this, this is sort of a, a touchy subject in a sense, because oftentimes it ends up looking like narcissistic personalities. It, it ends up being, you know, personality disorders, character disorders, um, if you look at the DSM textbook for um, for mental just you know mental health disorders, you end up looking at what's called Cluster B um, personality disorders, and you know this is tricky because you know I have patients who have personality disorders. I don't deny them the care that they need or that they ask for. Um, however, knowing that I'm a highly sensitive person, I have to exercise extreme boundaries that I learned the hard way in a doctor patient setting mm. with, with every patient, but especially with, um, with patients with, you know, personality disorders, because, um, those can, those individuals can drain energy and especially from um a highly sensitive person mm. and and so you know i've never denied care from those individuals um but i quickly found out that i had to change how i was responding to them because it's very easily for interactions to escalate if all of a sudden you are taking everything personally that they say, because that is how they get their power, you could say. Mm. Um, but, you know, in a personal setting, 
it's so tricky because they can be difficult personalities and it doesn't mean that they don't deserve help and care, Mm. but just being aware of what that looks like. And especially in personal relationships. Um, Are there any uh, uh, cases that you can think of where you had somebody with a personality disorder and there was something particularly that was difficult about it? What, what was the difficulty? So, and I think a lot of this comes from my own tendency and my own personality to react in ways I would react to certain comments made by another person. So, um, often a borderline personality disorder can, um, almost have like an accusatory type of language that they use Mm. where, um, it's very easy for them to misunderstand somebody else's intention. It's very easy for them to assume that they are the victim and being attacked um, by something that you might say that you don't feel is an attack. So I remember a few instances where I realized that my response to what they had to say was going to be the difference between escalating and de-escalating a conversation with them. And, um, and certainly people that don't have personality disorders can also act in this way. I don't want to single that group out as, oh, these are the bad people and everyone else is fine. Not at all. I just want to talk about sort of the spectrum of what this can look like and Mm -hmm. how interactions can become very toxic very quickly and just sort of understanding um, that the intent is not always, it's not always positive from people. So um, I would say the number one thing that I learned in those interactions was rather than responding with, um, it's almost like you just kind of figure out how to masterfully redirect them. Mm -hmm. You're always redirecting. And um, instead of meeting their comment head on with mm, a logical response uh, or even like sort of a sarcastic remark, which is what I was very tempted to do. And in some instances, even tried to explain myself to them. It often, it doesn't matter. And I would say that in sort of an energy vampire situation, they are taking power from you, taking draining energy from you to cut you down to size for whatever reason. Um, and redirection and sort of de-escalating as best as you can. I mean, sometimes it literally comes down to, in my mind, I'm thinking this conversation took a turn that doesn't make logical sense. This person feels attacked by what I have said and choosing your words is very (laughs) like being intentional, choosing your words with how you respond. And instead of, instead of, you know, responding to a comment like, well, 
how could you have thought that this was my fault? How could you have blamed me for this? A patient said to me once when I said, you know, I think the thing I said was, oh, I'm sorry that, um, what did I say? I'm trying to remember what my exact comment was that set them off. I said, I'm sorry that you were upset by this. And they immediately turned it around and said, I can't believe you're putting this on me. (laughs) And so I thought, oh, okay, I need to redirect or think if I come across a similar situation in the future, how can I use language that doesn't put anything on them, but is extremely neutral. And I also don't necessarily want to put it on me either, because that puts me in an sort of inferior position. And it's not like I'm trying to be above them, but I also don't want to completely shy away or back down either. So it's sort of a delicate balance because, you know, you don't want to, your version of a boundary, you don't want to just completely roll over and let them verbally abuse you because that's not really productive either, but you can learn tactful ways to establish a boundary and redirect when you have to, because a lot of times there isn't a lot of logic in the conversation, in the actual narrative. You can try to logic with them all you want and it doesn't matter. You end up draining your own energy by trying to convince them Mm. that no, you misunderstood this. All I was trying to do was this. Just skip that altogether. You don't even necessarily, um, obviously it, it depends on the circumstance, it depends on the conversation, but you don't necessarily need to explain yourself. You just move on and say, tell me about this. If they're willing to move on with you, which hopefully they are, um, then do that do that whenever you can and not even get into the nitty gritty of why they felt attacked. If, Mm. if you, if you end up in a situation where they're wanting to rehash it, which, you know, could definitely happen where they say, no, I'm offended. I don't want to talk to you anymore. You're attacking me. I'm the victim, that kind of narrative. Mm. Then you can sort of go back to, Um, I guess it's sort of like that spikes protocol. We learned it, like how to deliver bad news, how to deal with a difficult situation where it's a little bit of motivational interviewing and a little bit of like reflective conversation where you say to them, um, you know, I can, I can see how, how much this upsets you. You can try that. It might work. Um, kind of opening up the conversation for them to say what they need to say. So it's not that we're always necessarily trying to redirect and cut them off because that can aggravate them as well. But we want to give them the space to say what they needed to say. And if we can find any way to sort of soften them and gain trust. Um, I remember having to do this with a patient who was very paranoid and had, uh, I was worried, had a head injury, 
but had also had some mood disorder and potential personality disorder that she was absolutely not willing to talk about as a diagnosis, but just mm-hmm. sort of knowing that that was on the table. And one time, and I'd seen her for months and months and months, and all of a sudden she came in and had hit, she told me that she'd hit her head and she was acting differently. And I wanted her to leave in um, an ambulance so she could go get imaging just to make sure that that time she bumped her head wasn't responsible for why she was acting that way. Mm -hmm. And she had such mistrust for the medical system and she was a veteran and she'd understandably had a traumatic history and didn't trust anything that was going on. And I just told her, how long have I known you? How many months have I known you? I haven't ever put you in harm's way and that's not my intention now. And you, you find as a way as best you can if you have a relationship or sort of a history with that person, you try to get them to trust you. Um, you know, whether it's in you as the doctor or whatever the situation may be. If it's a new person that you're meeting, it's a lot more difficult because you don't, they don't have a reason to trust you. They're convinced that the world is against them. And in those situations, it is often very difficult to help them because their their own personal goals of healing are not clear. And what you try, you know, treatments, approaches for them, they will many times have resistance to that. Mm-hmm. Um, they will come in with a laundry list of complaints. They want you to address it all that day. They have an agenda and they want you to follow it and they will tell you what they want you to do. And it's tough, but it will, it will kind of force you to establish your own, your own boundaries. Okay. Where is my line? Mm. And at what point do I need to assert that line, remind them of the line, and in a sense, I remember a doctor talking about this once, um, just this topic of personality disorders and how we can interface with them in in the clinical setting and not be drained by those interactions. Um, And the distinction is that we, we still give, we still, you know, give love to those people. We, we want the best for them because they're human, but we can't give personal love to them. We have to give divine love. And that might seem esoteric because it's like, well, what does that mean? But what it means is you're not giving your own personal love You're not giving your energy. You're not even putting expectations on them that could be disappointed later. You're not putting your heart and soul into the outcome because divine love is a neutral place that is not up to you as the healer, as the doctor, as Mm -hmm. the person who is helping them, it's not up to you to decide. If that person doesn't want to be helped, 
it doesn't matter what you do, you can't help them. So it seems a little bit like a black and white situation, but I just, I want to help, I guess, demystify this whole scenario because it's true. Doctors go through burnout and I believe it's because um, we don't always have sort of like the discussions of how do we set up boundaries? Mm-hmm. Not only how do we get through the, our charts for the day or how do we get through paperwork or how do we see patients every 15 minutes, but how do we also energetically handle some of these personalities? Mm. Yeah. On the topic of boundaries, it seems that setting boundaries is not necessarily what's difficult, but knowing what your boundaries actually are, knowing where you actually stand and to even know where you stand, you have to know yourself. And that takes a long time Mm -hmm. because you also have to be aware of your own patterns. Mm -hmm. So with the idea of the, it takes two to tango kind of with like an empath and maybe like a narcissistic or energy vampire type ish person is that they essentially feed off each other. They give each other something that they seek. They uh, reiterate a certain version of reality. Um, It ends up being toxic for both of them. It's actually an interesting thing to, to think about in terms of what would be like an empathic personality from a psychological sense. Um, especially when it's pathological, like mm-hmm. if the empathy is like pathological, like trying to rescue, trying to save everybody around them, even mm-hmm. people who clearly don't want it, especially the people who don't want it. Those are the people usually that are sorry the most. And I wonder how much that has to do with kind of early childhood development, where someone grows up in a very unsafe environment and they have to almost be like hyper aware of their caregivers, uh, every subtle emotion, because they have to predict far ahead, oh, how will this way that I act affect them? And they think of the whole world in terms of, you know, how their actions influence the world, but in a very kind of um, introverted and kind of uh, defensive way, rather than thinking first of what are my needs and how do I make sure to get those met? Thinking first, what are the you know, other person's needs or what do I need to do to keep myself safe from them? Um, and I think that that kind of goes into, I mean, with all things, it's balance, right? So you can be like pathologically uh, empathic and pathologically um, apathetic, basically. Like you could either give no Fs about anybody, which is not <laughs> really a healthy mind state, um, or you could care so much that you burn yourself out and you're caring so much about people who you can't even necessarily really help. And they're both kind of uh, continuums. Well, so, so one thing, oh, I don't want to interrupt you, but one thing you said mm-hmm. made me think about how both, both parties, um, they're not good for each other. So clearly the empath or the highly sensitive individual um, interestingly enough, as much as the empath wants to reach out to humanity and help everybody, the empath often does not 
does not meet or does not um, have uh, attract a lot of like-minded individuals much of the time. It doesn't mean that we can't find our people, but <laughs> and I've wondered about this a lot because I was like, why am I always attracting people who have personality disorders? Why am I always attracting the people who want to dump all of their problems on me? Why is this? And um, it makes sense to me as far as a, well, I'm giving them something that they need, which is either someone to just listen and that's sometimes all it is. There's no malintent behind it. Other times it is, I just need the energy from someone else who cares whether or not it's malintended, it's still what it is. However, the empath often, like what you're saying, they want to fix everyone, even those that don't want to be fixed. The empath often becomes the enabler and the energy vampire doesn't change their habits because tough love can be very effective. Mm -hmm. Empaths don't like tough love. It's very difficult. It involves um, conflict usually, or at least involves, the threat of conflict always. It involves conflict, which is very uncomfortable for an empath. And I'm using these labels just to make things simpler, not to say that there's a lot that can exist in between. Of course, mm. we are not black and white beings. We are, mm. we are gray. <laughs> we are extremely gray. We're grays. Gray we aliens. are grays. <laughs> and so <laughs> we, but the labels do help as far as understanding these interactions because tough love is very difficult and the conflict is very difficult for the empath. And that's not to say that the conflict, I mean, a personality disorder, they live their life in conflict. They are either trying to, well, I would argue trying to start a conflict to have power over another or constantly feeling like they're a victim in a conflict mm -hmm. situation and they're being attacked. And a lot of times um, personality, dis personality disorders end up having broken relationships one after the other, whether it is family members that they haven't talked to in 10 years, um, several divorces, um, everyone in their workplace is against them. And I'm using air quotes for those that are just listening and not watching because they are highly paranoid, not in the sense that they're having hallucinations or imagining things that aren't there, but in a sense, they are sort of imagining something that's not there because they see what we would call an everyday reaction. They see that as I'm being attacked. Mm -hmm. And um, it makes interpersonal relationships extremely challenging. Um, and, you know, the best that can be done for those individuals, well, first of all, it's, it's a difficult diagnosis to make. Um, and we don't necessarily know what creates those personality disorders. Sometimes it does stem from a trauma history. And, you know, we're always looking for the root cause as naturopaths. Um, so if we can heal the trauma, a lot of times that ends up 
you know, some sort of therapy. And there's a lots of, you know, lots of different types of therapies. Some of it is talk therapy. Some of it is, you know, somatic experiential. Um, but that's, that's what ends up being the tools that psychiatrists will use with those individuals. Um, it's not something you can just take a pill for a lot of times. Uh, you can, you can, you know, help them to optimize their physical health, but what it really comes down to is if there's a trauma history, let's work on healing the trauma in however slow that needs to happen in whatever way it needs to happen. It can look like a lot of different things, but, Mm. but really learning sort of how to deal with interpersonal conflict is a piece of that for those individuals. Mm -hmm. So it really stems from this idea of conflict. And then the empath conflict makes them so uncomfortable because they just feel everything so deeply. They Mm -hmm. feel at odds on their own side of it and they feel how uncomfortable that other person is as well. Mm -hmm. And it sucks to feel that. I mean, sometimes, some days I wish that I didn't care as much because I was like, oh, well, wouldn't that be nice if I could just go through the day and not be as deeply affected as I am Mm. and just be able to get through the day, you know, because it's like, there's so much trauma in our world Mm -hmm. And if we choose to engage in the news and social media and the conversations happening around us and not be a complete shut in and like, you know, purposely put ourselves in the shadows so that we don't have to face the pain, you know, it's just, it's a difficult place to be, but, um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a point here about, the intention setting. So somebody might be approaching conflict from a standpoint that they actually want to create conflict. Either they're trying to get back at somebody or they have some kind of negative emotion that they're trying to discharge on someone and they're seeking conflict for that sake. Whereas um, I think the healthy form of conflict is you're actually seeking some good, but conflict is somehow you know, it's the bridge to get there. So maybe you're having a tough time with uh, a partner and you just know that it's this thing that's standing in the way. And you know that if you broach it, this is definitely going to lead into conflict, but you're, you're not aiming for the conflict. You're almost aiming past it. Um, and that, I think that's the healthy way to view conflict. Um, but a lot of conflict is not like that. A lot of conflict is chaotic and it doesn't really have any real purpose. And as you say about letting things in, I mean, it's big with the availability of information now and social media and all this information, we are the gatekeepers of our own mental sanity. Like you can be as messed up as you want to be if you just look at everything wrong and then that's what you focus on and it doesn't resolve anything by being aware of it in a lot of cases. Um, So I I think it's really helpful, especially for empathetic people, people who tend to feel deeply to really pick and choose their battles as you said, um, with what they're going to focus their mind on, what they're going to let in, how much of it they're going to let in. Um, Because you can't really help anybody if you yourself are not in a good state. I mean, that's the fundamental healer's dilemma, isn't it? With, you know, the wounded healer where uh, 
interfacing with these really difficult experiences of people can in and of itself be traumatic to you if you don't approach it with a certain kind of um, like stoicism in some sense where you have your own sense of your own self, your own boundaries, and you're coming in, as you said, with that uh, divine love aspect rather than personal. Mm-hmm. also brings up the point of it not being recommended for uh, doctors to treat their family or even mm-hmm. like surgeons to do surgeries on their family. And it's yes. because that connection is so close, right? That it almost yes. gets in the way of the actual therapeutic thing, because what if you have to do something that's going to hurt them, but it's ultimately going to lead to the better. It's going to be a little bit harder if you have personal attachment to that person. Yep. And I want to tell a story as far as, I mean, I've had many of these experiences, but one that stands out that's recent because it happened the last couple of years um, of feeling the the collective consciousness feeling sort of the feelings of another group rather than your own. So a good example of this for me was whenever it was that President Trump was elected, what was that, two years ago? I don't know. I don't even know what day it is. Yeah, who knows anymore? (laughs) It's Groundhog Day. (laughs) Indeed. indeed. (laughs) But I remember... And I'm not a big political news person because I'm highly sensitive. It is too overwhelming for me because I often feel powerless, as I'm sure many of us do. We don't know where to start. So I've sort of redirected, instead of feeling guilty about not engaging with the news, um, I found other ways to to help my own version of feeling like I was doing something and being Mm -hmm. a doctor is a big part of that. Um, And so I remember on election night, um, I had not really kept a close eye on what the polls were doing. And I went to bed pretty early that night, like 8.39 PM. I always turn my phone on airplane mode. So I turn it. Yeah, I'm just like, not honestly, keep, keeping my phone on airplane mode, even through the day. I mean, oh, you can yeah. save yourself so many problems. It's how, how it's like Pandora's box. You yep. open it up, you go on Instagram, you just look through and it's just like, you look through for a while and you just feel like your soul has been drained from your body. Exactly. And you're you just feel anxious. N- you just feel numb. You feel drained. You're like, I'm anxious and I'm also depressed. I don't know what to think. I feel hopeless. Now I'm just, but you also don't necessarily feel, at least I don't feel more informed. I feel more helpless. No, it does. Some information doesn't help to know about. So I turn my phone on airplane mode like I do every night, went to sleep. About midnight or 1 a.m., I wake up in a panic and I don't know why. Hmm. My heart is racing. I'm gasping for air. I start pacing around the apartment. I, you know, use the restroom. I try to figure out, well, what time is it? I hear some, you know, sort of commotion outside, people talking or carrying on. I eventually go back to sleep. The next morning, I send a text. And, you know, I was a student at the time. I sent a text to one of my friends who's a student um, and say in the text, I said, who is the president? And she responds with Donald Trump. And I said to myself, that's why I woke up in a panic 
because the whole world, many people in, in, in our world, in our immediate United States world, were in a panic because right about the time I woke up was a little bit after those final results had come through. Mm-hmm. And I'm not here to talk about politics, but I felt the panic of at least the people in my neighborhood, in the city, mm-hmm. and showed up to school the next day and people were crying. They were so upset. They were so freaked out what was going to happen, right? And so, and I felt that and I knew it was not my own fear. I knew because I was dead asleep, but that woke me up. And um, I think we just, we have to, however we can start to recognize where does our, where does our true feeling or fear or opinion or anxiety or what's going on for us at the time, where does that end? And where does somebody else's suffering come in? Where does that mm. begin? And, and as much as we can try to figure out where that line is, because what is the mob mentality? Why is it so scary to, uh, you know, see people rioting is only because as soon as something shifts and all of a sudden there's mass chaos. That shift is happening internally in us. And people are, and it's a domino effect. It's a wave. As soon as that intense feeling is sparked in one person, it's very easy to affect the feeling of It's like a virus. Else. It's like a exactly. mental virus that even, just spreads. Even if that person didn't come into that situation thinking, I'm afraid of this. I'm going to rise up against this. I'm... I am afraid of the virus. I'm, you know, I want to, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. I'm going to freak out about this or this thing on the news happened. I'm going to react in this way. All of a sudden you start to sort of follow what's happening around you. And it happens in nature where a flock of birds fly away from a storm. Um, And the birds, they follow each other. Like they are, ingrained it's ingrained in them to follow the herd Mm -hmm. um or the flock or whatever you know it's it's unnatural for one human to not follow a crowd of people one direction and to go the opposite direction it's very unnatural to do that right but i would say the mob mentality it's a very intense force and we are dealing with a lot of divided mob mentalities right now which makes things even more difficult to deal with because we don't know a lot of times it's the emotions that are pulling us this way or another you know or that way and we don't know we can't find our bearings Mm. um the last two months i think have been so instrumental in proving the existence of some kind of collective unconscious to me mm -hmm. where it's like because i have been mostly trying to avoid social media, buying into everything going on as much as possible ever since the whole quarantine thing started. Because I, at first I just jumped right in. I wanted to know everything about COVID. I wanted to know what was happening. I wanted to know when we were reopening. I wanted to know all that. And what did it do? It just got me in a, it got me in a fluster. It got in the way of my daily life. 
So at one point I kind of decided, okay, you know, I can choose what I focus my mind on. I'm going to focus my mind on what I need to do to, you know, live well, to, to treat people well that are near me, to, to have the influence that I possibly can. Um, but the interesting thing that happens with the airplane mode kind of thing is you'll still feel the mass reactions, even if you're not watching them, which is so strange because after not uh, watching very closely and then being in like a super anxious state, almost like panicky and not knowing why. And then you look and you see all this stuff happening and you're like, I wasn't even aware that all that was happening. And I was already feeling it like already feeling it on some deep level. Um, it's, it's really interesting. And our, even our dreams are affected by it. Like last night I had a dream about this whole situation. I've been mostly, um, you know, just focusing on graduating because mm-hmm. any, any sliver of attention that goes any like extra cortisol burst that comes from any <laughs> other source is it's just, uh, I'm like teetering on the edge already, just <laughs> the basic requirements of life. So like anything coming in, I'm just like, Nope, that's going to destroy me. Yes. Um, but it's still, you know, going into my mind, still something that I think about. I can't help but to think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually had a dream, which I think was pretty healing last night, where I think I found what my kind of place in it is. Mm. Um, and in the dream, I saw like a group of like protesters walking by and I was sitting on a hill, like sitting in a grassy hill, kind of in almost like a meditative posture. And I was just sitting there watching them with kind of gratitude, love and support and just like clapping. That's the whole, that's what the whole dream was, mm-hmm. is me just like watching people doing uh, this, which I saw as actually very like beneficial and something deep, something true mm-hmm. was happening mm-hmm. but that I was there in a, you know, kind of supportive role from, from my, from my own place. Um, and I've, I've always been like that, you know, studying philosophy and everything. So I always like whatever is the the mass view on anything, I'm almost always like the opposite view by nature. Um, but mm-hmm. it, it, it's it's interesting. You can't get away from those human conflicts because they're happening within us. And I bet even if you were living in some cave somewhere, you'd still have weird dreams that were that you could probably link together. Well, this and that is happening. In fact, I actually think I had a dream about all this COVID stuff a while ago. Wow, really weird mm-hmm. one. So let me share just. In, okay. just it's probably had okay. Anyway, so the dream happened about two years ago, and it was a very particularly strange one because there was a lot of symbolism that I didn't understand until later. So in the dream, there's some kind of like weird chaotic pandemic going on, um, and I go up to this house. There's this party, some kind of house party there that I'm trying to enter into. At the door, there's a person, and there's also like a half dog, half human. Uh, who is basically there to sniff people's like wrists to see if they have influenza. That's literally what the dream was. And um, in the dream, you weren't allowed into the party unless you were cleared for influenza, which was really weird because it had nothing to do with anything at the time. This was a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. um, but it really stuck in my minds for a few reasons. Um, there was a lot of like healing elements later in the dream where I went into some temple like underwater and I was searching for my healing and then learning about the myths of uh, Asclepius and those kind of groups. So he's often represented uh, as having like a dog companion, like the dog is symbolic, which is really weird because after that dream, I started, when I saw dogs, I started seeing their face. 
Like I started because in the dream, it was like a half human, half dog. It was really weird. Hard to explain. But after that, I, I saw dogs and I actually saw that they had a face and a personality. Like they were like people kind of. Um, but anyway, all that to say that, you know, then all this starts happening and then that dream instantly comes back up and I'm like, oh, wow. Like, is this like one of those premonition dreams that happens a few years before big kind of cataclysmic things? Um, it's pretty well reported before big wars and things. People have all sorts of weird dreams in the months and years leading up. Well, I was having, I was noticing um, sort of end of days types of dreams mm. for, and it might've been kind of around when all of this started or, um, but the timeline is becoming so blurry that it's hard to know. But I, I'm not typically a person that has, um, like doomsday dreams, doomsday <laughs> dreams for nights and nights on end. Like sure, it'll <laughs> happen here and there in in life, but it was happening all of the time. Like just very intense, sort of end of end of days, and it brings up for me and everything that's kind of coming to a head. There's so much right now that it feels like we've been in a pressure cooker for a long time, and we didn't notice it at first. It's kind of like when you put lobsters into the warm water and they're like, okay, everything's fine. And then at a certain point they're being boiled and it, you know, that is literally what's happening is you don't notice that the water temperature is slowly increasing if you've been in the bath that entire time. But the fact is there's been so much toxic shit that has been going on for a lot longer than we've been alive that so much of it now is coming to a head and it's a very volatile and tumultuous time. And some would say 2020 is the worst year ever. Right. But like, if we're able to change and, and make significant change in some huge areas of our society that need to change, if this is, if shit literally needs to burn down before it can be rebuilt, I mean, would you, I, I don't know many people that would want to go back to the way things were, where, you know, and that's not to say that we are out of that yet, but we are in a process of change. Mm -hmm. I don't know where that leaves us, but um, I think that in general, in order for us to raise our own vibration as human beings, as a collective, we need to take out the trash. And right. so that means something different for all of us. We all have toxic shit in our lives, in our individual lives that is trash and we need to take out the trash. And sometimes that means, you know, a lot of us, I think, are finding out who our true friends are and who is not. Mm. right now um just in our reactions and responses to the things that are going on around us it's a very polarizing time it's also a time where on the one hand being neutral might serve us but as far as the racist conversation as far as i'm concerned there is no neutral that is not part of the oppressor mm. that doesn't mean that as far as the virus is concerned that we can't have some neutrality and, and see what's happening around us. But 
I don't believe that you can be neutral and not be racist. You must be anti-racist mm. or racist. And I believe we all have work to do um, in that regard and examining our own biases, our own uh, behaviors, and maybe ways that we've stayed silent that was actually doing more harm than good. Mm. And so I think it's just time we take out the trash and maybe our dreams are part of that detoxing process. But coming back to being intentional, um, I think it's like we're in a time right now where people are so easily triggered just by using a certain word in a sentence a certain way. I mean, it's it's like we've we've started to scrutinize each other that with that level of detail mm-hmm. that we must be so intentional about what we say, especially if we were to go posting something on social media or, I mean, even recording this conversation, I'm wondering how many people are going to think I'm discriminating against people with personality disorders, right? But that's not my intention. <laughs> yeah. It's not my intention at all. So right. I hope hope I'm not misunderstood, but well, there will be people that misunderstand. And that's part right. of the thing is you can't really control that. Like right. all you can control is your own intent, taking out your trash, mm-hmm. living your life, being good, expressing that. And people will misinterpret as they will. And there's really nothing that can be done about it because then it gets into that kind of dynamic of the going back to like the empath and the narcissist where the empath will kind of walk on eggshells always and never actually be themselves because they're afraid of being themselves in a way that to a normal person wouldn't cause a reaction, but to a person who's deeply troubled, even normal things are taken as an offense. So I've, I've known people like that and it's really hard to separate yourself from that because unless you have like some group of people to talk to and be like, Hey, this and that happened. Is that normal? And they're like, that's not normal. Like that's not a normal response. What, what they said to what you said was not a normal response. Like you shouldn't feel bad about what you said. You, any typical person would have not taken offense at that, but you kind of, um, especially when you're in a close relationship with a person like that, you start taking on those kind of things and you think, you know, everything that I do that triggers them is something that I'm doing that's wrong, which is not necessarily the case. And that's the classic abusive relationship, isn't it? Mm. Think of the stereotypical uh, husband, either verbally or physically abusing the wife. Mm -hmm. Let's say a narcissistic husband. And I'm of course using stereotypes here. Of course, women can also abuse men, you know, uh, whatever, but the whoever the victim is here we'll say it's the wife who's being abused she's convinced that she is in the wrong which is why she stays or she's terrified of what she might lose if she leaves and the classic narcissistic abuser husband um makes her think that she can't have it any better if she were to leave makes her think that she's lesser than um and that narcissistic husband is so charming to all of her friends and all of her family members there's no way and in fact 
those personalities mm. often put people against each other who should be on the same side. Mm. So when you they spread insidious see- rumors and things like that, and then even yep. your friends are like, well, maybe you're in the wrong, but that's and all that manipulation. It, it, manipulation is exactly it. And that is the intention is manipulation. How can the narcissist make themselves look better Often it means making others look worse. It means weakening others. How can you weaken someone else? Make them think that they need you, that they cannot be independent. Mm -hmm. And again, using labels, making it very black and white to illustrate a point. Mm -hmm. It is not always that black and white in our interactions. It often is, however, that black and white. And... Um, and that's part of the danger of getting yourself out of one of those relationships because that person that's labeled the energy vampire or the narcissist, that's just like a, a part of them. Mm-hmm. It's not all they are. That's not all. They have loving qualities. They have great qualities. They have this and that. And then they also have this. Mm-hmm. So it's really easy to stay tangled up in that because especially if you come from an empathetic kind of viewpoint. Especially. Especially because a narcissistic personality, if we're talking about textbook definitions, Mm. a psychopathic personality, they are often the most charming people you will ever meet. That's so scary. (laughs) That is why, I mean, if they were acting, you know, abusive and um, violent and 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 ugly, why would anybody be caught in their net. It doesn't Mm. work like that. It is extremely manipulative. Um, And us empaths, or at least from my perspective, you see the charm in that person and you want so badly for that to be who they always are in their entirety. The empath wants to see everybody reach their fullest potential they see one little thing in somebody that is good, the charming personality, their first impression was this. Oh, they were so charismatic. They were so funny. They were such a gentleman until, you know, you try to do this thing and they lashed out or they got jealous because you wanted to do this thing. It's, it is an extremely manipulative often subtle to an outsider. Mm. And that is how sometimes friends and family members can be pulled apart because they say, oh, well, why are you trying to leave this person? He's, mm. he's an absolute gentleman. And they aren't seeing sort of that underlying manipulation. But what you said is important also earlier, which is that you have to have people you do trust that you can use as a sounding board in these types of situations, especially if you cannot distinguish what's right and wrong here? Like, Mm -hmm. is it really you and your own shit that you have to deal with and grow? And it's, it's an opportunity for your own growth. Um, and that's why the conflict is happening. Or is it because you're in this toxic relationship and you Mm. are seeing this as your fault when in fact it's the personality disorder that is causing you to feel this way. Right. And that's kind of the role of, um, the counselor, the wise counsel, it's, it's -hmm. almost impossible to see that because there's always mixed elements because Mm -hmm. even in that case that I was referring to where I was caught in this kind of pattern, 
I was also playing into it and I was also doing things that were bad as well. But like to get that nuanced of a view is really difficult because usually it's, it's all them or it's all me. And like you kind of vacillate between the two things, but it's usually just, as you were saying, this kind of um, gray. So having an outside view is so important because when you're in the pattern, you can't really see the pattern at all. And on the other hand of that, you know, the family members and the friends thinking that the partner or the narcissistic husband or wife or partner is in the right, a lot of times it can go the other way where your friends and family are saying to you, there's something up with that person. I don't think you're safe. You need to get out. And you may not have made it full circle. You might still be trying to as the empath, you might still be trying to wait, but if only he would reach his potential, mm. then it would be fine. And, and you want that so bad. You want that for all of humanity. That is like the ultimate goal is for each and every one of us to reach our highest potential. However, mm. we will not all reach our potential. Um, and that version of the story often puts family members against each other because, you know, the sister, the cousin, the mother said to her daughter, you need to leave him. And she said, I can't. All of a sudden, the sister and the mother and the cousin, they want nothing to do with this wife of a narcissist anymore. She won't leave him, right? And, and that creates, so there's really, there's no way to actually avoid conflict. You're just, you're kind of redirecting the conflict mm. by, by trying to avoid or walk on eggshells around these difficult conversations or, or, you know, being afraid to put up boundaries, you end up causing causing conflict in some way it mm. may not be directly with that person well that's the thing you you might temporarily stop the external conflict but what do you get you get an internal conflict that's oh, yeah. that's the trade-off it, oh big time it's it's either going to happen externally or it's going to happen inside of you and you're not going to even know why it's happening mm-hmm. there's also yep. a um this kind of insight I've had and also read, I wanted to hear what, what you thought about it, that fundamentally, psychologically speaking, there's two main energies, love and power. And mm. if, you, if, you, if you don't have one, you want the other. So people who don't have a sense of love, they don't have a sense of love from others for themselves, they seek power over people. And mm-hmm. power means manipulation, controlling, et cetera. Yep. Yep. Um, and vice versa, people who have love don't really seek power over people. They just seek. So there, this dualities of being a human being. And it, it seems to, it helps in viewing somebody who is manipulative Mm -hmm. as not like bad or evil, but actually what they really are, which is sick and wanting of love. Cause that's really what it is. It's no one, who is very manipulative is ever a happy person. I mean, I've, they might seem happy, but that's their, you know, their, their charm, Mm -hmm. which is an illusion, which is another form of power and manipulation over people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I would agree 
that to me that makes sense that if you if you have love and you feel loved um then that should be all that there is what else is there beyond that you don't feel the need to have power or to overpower another if you have what you need because seeking power means that you've been denied something mm-hmm. or at least the perception that you've been denied something. Right. Um, and you know, the, the theory behind why does one person rape another person? It's not, it has much less to do with being, sexually turned on it's to overpower that person it's to shame that person it's maybe even to manipulate Mm -hmm. that person whether or not they knew them whether or not they um really even premeditated it it's a power seeking Mm -hmm. um and it is more about the damage in that own in in the perpetrator Mm. It's a lot less about their victim most of the time. Statistically. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a really good point. It's like when, when you're in a kind of chaotic environment where you don't have that feeling of love, the biological imperative is to seek control of the situation. Mm-hmm. And then that can become pathological where it's somebody feels that they're so, so low. They feel maybe so rejected that they'll actually, that's their way of getting back. Actually, it's a really interesting that you uh, you bring the conversation there because if you look at pretty much every famous serial killer, they all had serious issues with women, their mothers, et cetera, and most of their targets were women. And I think that that's the reason why, to mm-hmm. some degree, they had some kind of like deep resentment from something that happened, either real or imagined. Mm-hmm. And then right. to get that like sense of, feeling like they're okay or worthy of love they took actions that gave them not love but at least power so mm-hmm. that was a, some satisfaction for them yep. yeah exactly um yes it's an interesting world we live in isn't it yeah well uh, 2020 is the year of the shadow for i'm, I'm calling it here it's mm-hmm. the year of the shadow mm-hmm. i think that that's accurate <laughs> i think we would all agree with that there is some dark shit coming up, but you know what? It's been around. We have been living amongst it. We have in many cases, maybe not wanted to face it. Um, well, now we're it, being forced to face it, which is have, way more painful than choosing we have no to face choice. It. Yeah. We have no choice now. And, but what we do have a choice in is how do we intentionally pick and choose what gets to stay and what gets taken out with the trash. Mm. Because it is a time that we can, I mean, what a, what a great time to make those changes. The momentum is already happening. Um, many of us are spending a lot more time at home with our own thoughts for better or worse. And it is an opportunity to make some radical change mm. for each of us as individuals. Mm. Um, and sort of starting, I would hope, with a clean slate in a lot of regards. Mm. You know, thing I've been thinking about lately in terms of whenever I catch myself complaining about something is doing this thought experiment of figuring out how am I at fault for this? 
And you can always find how you're at fault Mm. for something that happened or some circumstance. And although that seems that that would make you feel bad, it actually makes you feel really good because you realize if I was the reason that this or that happened in my life, that's bad. That means that I could make the good thing happen also, just as it's just another choice. So that's been really helpful in like not not even blaming the external environment for my own internal feelings. Cause at the end of the day, like what's happening externally, it's triggering internal, but the internals, that's my stuff to work with. That's not any, like to say that this and that happened because I'm feeling this way because this and that, like, that's only part of the story. Mm-hmm. Really. There's something there, you know, there's some wounding that's still, you know, felt by difficult circumstances or, or something like that. And I think that, um, you know, that brings up this idea that when we're complaining, obviously there's an element of suffering there or dis, mm-hmm. you know, discord that we, we feel um, if something is not ideal and it's causing us to complain, whether or not it's just because we're not practicing gratitude or we don't see our own sort of um, responsibility in the situation, but there is a level of dissatisfaction. And I think in the, the power in that is we can turn it into rather than complaining, what is it that we are curious about? Because people who are curious are propelling themselves forward toward Mm. something. You are the now in, you are seeking something out versus complaining feels a little bit more like I'm digging my heels in. You don't necessarily have a solution in mind. You're just saying these things are happening and I don't like this. And it's sort of like you're taking like a stubborn stance on things. Now, if you're solution oriented or you're like, I wonder what would happen if I tried this instead, like how would that change certain circumstances? Okay. Clearly I'm dissatisfied. However, I wonder how things could be different Mm. if I tried this. And it doesn't necessarily always have to be like an action step that we, that we go you know, change something physically, but rather what we were talking about before, which is that you can choose what you focus on in your mind as, or you can reframe what you were thinking about as being the complaint or being the struggle or being the negative thing. Mm. Just, just as I would argue as even though a lot of shit has happened in 2020, I would argue that this is the time that we take the trash out. Mm-hmm. what better time this is our opportunity everyone's on board everyone's going through some shit right now it's factual. no matter what no matter what side you are on of anything right mm-hmm. you are going through something you're pissed about something more yeah. than likely even if you're the most zen yeah. peaceful person something has got you you know yeah got you going about something i was talking to my uh friend about this and we were kind of talking about how a lot of our plans got derailed. And um, what came to my mind as we were talking about this is like everyone's plans got derailed because everyone's <laughs> always planning. So if things get derailed, yes. then everyone's things get derailed yes. unless they're just not doing anything. And then right. their plans aren't derailed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And but then they're like, just going back to meditating in the cave. <laughs> right. Because everyone can make a good argument why 
this circumstance, you know, the quarantine, everything that's happening, this is so bad, especially for me, mm. I'm the victim, et cetera, which is fundamentally such a, it's such an insidious viewpoint because you don't really realize how harmful it is to even let like a thought of that pass because that mindset of complaining about a situation, if we look at it clearly, we see that actually the complaining just perpetuates it. Not only because we're convincing ourselves that that's the reality and that's what it is, but it comes from this root of not only are things bad the way they are, but I have no say in it. That's what complaining is like discharging your almost your uh, energy that could be used in figuring out, you know, how, how you could deal with something. There's this thought experiment that I've been thinking about um, where whenever you're really having a hard time, you just imagine what would this look like if it was easy? Mm. Like what would the easy version of this look like? Mm -hmm. And often like it's right there. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And it's just when you stop like resisting, it's like, oh, the easy version version is I just do the thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Simple. Like the hard version is, you know, complex and it has all sorts of weird, you know, ways around it. But it reminds me of what we were talking about offline in part one. So mm, we had a lengthy conversation. The secret episode. The secret epi- the multiverse on <laughs> offline. <laughs> tune in via ESP a conversation where I was backpacking in Nepal Mm -hmm. and I was very physically uncomfortable and I was pissed because I couldn't take a shower because Mm. we were in the mountains. We were, you know, going from shack to shack. um, And a lot of times there wasn't hot water or there wasn't a shower at all. And days and days went by where I wasn't able to shower. And I was pissed because I was a spoiled American who's never been without hot running water and a bed unless I chose to go out into the wilderness like I did this time. I mean, it was my choice to do it. And yet here I was complaining like a spoiled American. Mm -hmm. Um, And eventually I decided at some point, and maybe it was because my complaining mind got tired and said, yeah, well, okay, I guess I'll just surrender to this. What's the worst that could happen? Right? Nothing. You're just, you smell worse. Yeah. That is it. You're in the same spot as you were before, except now you're just not in mental anguish. It's the only difference. And everything (laughs) in my environment and what I was seeing out in, in the world and the people I was interacting with and like, you know, the spiritual experience, like all of that remained the same. The only difference was I either, I got a shower or I didn't. And I decided that I was going to be fine with not getting a shower until the next time I got one, which who knows when that would have been. It either Mm. was when the trek ended or it was going to be somewhere along the trek. Yeah. And the interesting thing is like the, the suffering wasn't necessarily caused by you know, the lack of a shower, it was caused by your ideas of showering Yep. or how it should be or how things should be different than they are. I mean, you can sum up all human suffering as these are the ways that things should be different than they are. Mm -hmm. Insert like whatever. Yes. Yes. And not only like 
even if things are great, like even if you just accomplished something that you'd been working toward for, you know, weeks, months, years, you get to that final accomplishment and it's done and you're on the other side of it. And for some of us, it's like the first thing in your head is, oh, well, I could have done this differently. Or mm. now I have to worry about filming. Yeah, what's next? What's next? You don't even, you know, someone compliments you on your accomplishment and you don't even acknowledge, acknowledge it. it. You brush yeah. it off. Like you're like, well, you know, it, it, whatever. I, and then you're picking it apart, all the things you could have done better. And it's like, I just remember when I finally got to take that shower in Nepal and I was washing my <laughs> hair and it was the most blissful experience ever. <laughs> and I was like, wow, talk about a perspective change. All of a sudden, this showering became on the pedestal of my life goal, you know, as I knew it. And like, how blessed was I that I got a hot shower and was able to wash my hair for the first time in whatever it was, two weeks. And it was such a blissful experience that that was the perspective shift. It's like, look around, see how, how poor these people are living amongst, amongst you. Um, and yet they are so happy. They are so friendly. Um, they live their life through a very different lens, looking through a very different lens with, with very different perspectives on what suffering is. And you know, for a lot of those people living in Nepal, they didn't know anything other than sometimes you get a hot shower if the sun was out that day. Other days you don't. They that's didn't partially know. how we're poisoned by the media and social media and all that, because by definition, it's always everything you see, the mind automatically compares yourself to it. But that's a very dangerous path because if you follow that path, you'll just become not only like everyone else, but you'll actually become just like what others project, which isn't even necessarily true. Mm-hmm. So you, you kind of lose your own, um, you lose your own way. I ultimately, I think just comparing yourself with yourself of yesterday is like the, the most mentally healthy way to live because well, we're all so different. Before I went to Nepal, I never thought that I would want to like sit in a room with someone else and listen to their problems. That was not my goal. And then something shifted in me in mm. Nepal and it was like, you know, it was, it was physically taxing. It was, you know, outside of my comfort zone as far as the amenities I was used to. And it was a spiritual experience and something about being there um, made me realize it's time to dedicate my life to serving other people. It's not enough to just be serving myself. Sure. There's the aspect of physician, heal thyself, heal yourself so that you can heal someone else. Mm. Um, it's not heal yourself because you're the only one that matters. That's not what it's for. Right. Um, so that trip was, it was pivotal for me. Um, and I think that, you know, I think back a lot to that trip, especially in the times that we are now where we're divided, we are, um, we need to count our blessings. We need to 
kind of force ourselves however we can. I mean, obviously travel is not that possible easily right now, but I would say for those people that are um, living in their own bubble as far as believing that things should be a certain way, not understanding what it's like for another individual, what someone else might be going through, what their suffering looks like. Travel to another country. Travel, if you've never left the state that you live in, go to another state. When we are allowed to travel easily again, go somewhere else that's not where you are from, and you will quickly realize that life is very different from the little bubble where you grew up. I mean, it's so important for us to go out and experience the world because then we realize how narrow our view mm. is. Um, and it doesn't necessarily take going to another country to figure that out. You could just out. read a book of somebody from you the could, 1800s who was you could, a yes, philosopher you could, of life and see a whole different world. <laughs> you could read a, his, a history book. You could read, you know, yeah. I mean, you could go to the other side of the city, right? You could go to a different neighborhood, see how things are different. I mean, we just, we like our comfort zones. We got to break, we got to break it down sometimes, mm. you know? Yeah. That's the, that's the default mode, you know, seeking for comfort, mm-hmm. good feeling. It makes sense. I mean, good feeling feels good. And if you could have yeah, more of it, why wouldn't you want more? But it right. never works like that. Cause it's like the shower thing where like, Showers are good. They feel good, right? Okay, have five showers a day and like appreciate any of them. So like, are they good? Or maybe they're good when you have them every once in a while or maybe they're good after a nice workout because now it's like, there's a reason for it. Not just because you shower compulsively five times a day. (laughs) Oh my goodness. But everything is like, everything's like that um, shower thing. It's interesting too, because at least we're incredibly in a good place, like in the United States and most parts of the United States where most of our needs are met. And like the question now is like, how do you live like a fulfilled life in spite of all these, uh, this or that difficulty? It's not for many people. It's not a question of like, where are they going to get their next loaf of bread from? Although there are people like that. And I'm sure now it's even more than it was before. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, it's like when you take away the fundamental difficulties of being a human, you get all sorts of fake difficulties. Mm-hmm. Like thought, like being in your head and like thoughts, like what, it, what is the life that I'm meant for and, and all this. And, mm-hmm. and sometimes I tend to be like that too, like thinking of like the greater meaning of my life. But sometimes I have to take almost a Zen view of it, where it's just, just live your life. Just be there, you know. If you're walking, mm-hmm. walk. If you're sleeping, sleep. If you're eating, eat, you know. Not everything has to have some thought to go along with it. Like that life is what happens in between thoughts, probably, because thoughts are very <laughs> distracting. Thoughts are very pervasive, you know, and especially when we allow our our own thoughts and opinions, we, we need them to be informed by something that is external. Mm. Yeah, my man uh, Socrates, he said, the life unexamined is not worth living. <laughs> yeah. And that, exactly. I think that means examining your own thoughts and not just like when you catch like a complaint or anything that just makes you feel bad, 
to question like, what's the purpose of it? Is this something that I'm going to accept, agree with? And most of the time, it's just like this uh, tape recorder that's just on a broken loop and no one knows who started it. But it's just going and it's, you know, not in accord with reality. You know, you you finally uh, achieve something and then it, it tells you not good enough or, you know, you don't achieve something and it says, oh, you're so bad that you didn't do it. It's like you never win with the problem isn't like what we do. It's our mind in what we do because mm-hmm. that will define you can have, you know, millions of dollars and be held to be the most successful person in the world and enlightened by everybody. Um, but you might not even enjoy your life. I mean, that happens to a lot of people. So that's priorities. I think this, this time is showing us priorities, you know, what, what are the priorities? Oh yeah. yeah. So I want to make sure I talk one more time, a little bit about like the boundary setting yeah, right. And what that and what that can look like. Yeah, what does that that look like? Because I, you know, I hear that a lot. That you know, mm-hmm. oh, I need to set boundaries, and it seems a little bit like a very abstract notion of what. Yeah, and certainly, thing. like there are probably a lot of ways to do it, and so I'll share some ways that um, have worked for me and um, a few different versions of of what it looks like. Because um, I think people just resonate with different practices. Um, and one thing that we talked about in part one of our conversation was, um, and it was actually in the context of how to strengthen your intuition, but Mm. I think that part of this is all sort of connected in a sense because a lot of our boundary comes from our connection with the earth. Like that is really our core energy source. So when we feel drained, when we're going about the day. Um, It may be because we've been spending most of the time in our heads, either worrying about something or, uh, you know, thinking about something, working through a problem or looking for some sort of external stimulus as far as, um, you know, news and, and, and being connected to the collective unconscious. Mm -hmm. And those are ways that our energy gets drained but ways that we can become energized is something that I mentioned before in the other episode, which was um, either barefoot walking or different grounding exercises. Mm. If you have the ability to go walk without shoes on and get your feet actually in dirt or like walk in the sand, like along the beach, that in and of itself. Mm. That sounds nice. I mean, just like you can like go there now in your mind and I just, I mean, my body, yeah. And my body just like, I know that when I'm walking barefoot on the beach, something about the sand and the way you kind of have to balance a little bit, you have to grip a little bit with your feet and you're getting the negative ions from the ocean and the waves, but and you're getting like that ocean air, but my body will just kind of adjust itself just doing that. And I mean, physically, like, Sometimes I'll get, you know, aches and pains in, you know, my back and then I'll walk on the beach and all of a sudden it'll just sort of set itself right. So, you know, that's very particular to having access to the coast, which is amazing if you have that. Yeah, that's why Oregon is the greatest state of all time. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, the coast. We got the coast over here. We got the mountains over here. Yep. It's awesome. So, you know, you don't have to be at the ocean. You can, you can you know, if you have to just go right outside your house, your apartment, um, 
walk around if you don't have that easy access. Honestly, something that a doctor told me once when I was feeling anxious was get a bucket of dirt, (laughs) put your feet in it, get a few pebbles that you can mix in there and feel them with your feet. Like sounds pretty sad. It is sad, (laughs) but like think about people in New York city who are, you know, they're, I mean, who knows when the last time they left their high rise apartment. Can't even imagine being on the 30th floor and everything's quarantined. It's like, how do you even live? Talk about stress. Oh my gosh. I would be an anxious mess. And I'm sure that a lot of people over there are right now. If they're not, Mm -hmm. if that's not part of their normal everyday life, I'm sure they're more anxious now. Hopefully they have some way to get outside. Um, And then the other thing is, um, honestly, a practice that when I went to massage school and my massage teacher was talking to us about boundaries um, and she said, and this was, you know, in between doing body work with people, but um, she said, you know, wash your hands in cold water and wash your wrists off. And I don't know what it is about the wrists, but it's some exchange of energy that happens there from an energetic standpoint. So sometimes wash your hands in cold water, even if that's, even if you don't actually have to wash your hands, I mean, now we're washing our hands all the time. So that's an easy thing to do, but just cold water is good. Cause it just kind of, you know, gets your circulation going. Um, and then sometimes it's like, if you're going into a patient room or you're switching from one patient room to another, and you need to just ground yourself, like just stop, take a few deep breaths, mm. feel your feet, like focus on your feet. Um, or before you're going in for an interview or a difficult conversation, or, you know, you have a public speaking engagement or something that you would feel nervous about. Um, Take a few deep breaths, close your eyes. If that feels comfortable to you, get grounded in your body and uh, you know, deep breathing or four square breathing where you're inhaling for four seconds holding the breath for four seconds, exhaling for four, and then holding for four. That's four square breathing. That's a way to get into the parasympathetic system of the body, but also be able to feel your body physically. And you can imagine a protective color around you. Just imagine that. Start to, and if it's, if it's difficult to imagine, just mm. practice it anyway. Just pretend that you can see it. Just think about like, if I were watching a movie right now, if I closed my eyes and I pretended I watched, was watching a movie and someone had a protective halo mm. around them. And you What's can your think, color right now? Mine is like a green, like emerald. Oh, nice. I just nice. felt when you said that, I just kind of saw it almost behind me. Oh, nice. Um, I would say mine changes, but lately it's been kind of like a pale lavender-ish color. Mm. Um, and But it's certainly been green and yellow for me as well. Um, mm. and, and it can change. I'm actually going to do something very unprofessional and walk downstairs to my charger <laughs> <laughs> um, to disrupt this. But, but yes, so uh, we'll be back after a short intermission. (laughs) So (laughs) here we are, like I never left. Um, But yeah, I think that actually picturing a halo, a protective color around you. It's a full uh, return because this is this is where we filmed part one. So we've, everything we've full the, the the loop is being closed <laughs> on this episode series. Yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> um, 
but yes, imagining, imagining a protective light or that you're bathing yourself in, you know, it could be white light. It could be whatever, whatever color feels good to you. And I would say practice if, if that resonates with you practice that before you go into, um, a situation where you feel like you need a little bit more protection for lack of a better word. So mm. practice it when you're in a safe space and see if you can um, even feel that. And I think that that practice, it's good for boundary setting, but it's also, it's also um, could be a powerful practice for people that don't feel like they're not as in tune with, um, or they don't feel like they're intuitive or they don't, they have difficulty being able to perceive something in their mind's eye. Mm-hmm. Um, I think just just practicing, you know, imagining like a ball of light that you mm-hmm. can move around your space. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's sort of like an energetic, from an energetic standpoint. And then honestly, using, sometimes it's like rehearsing certain um phrases if you think that you're going to be in a situation where like you know you're going to go talk to somebody and you know that person is going to try to manipulate their way some way with you um and you know you're going to have to tell that person no in a certain sense you almost have to prepare yourself and be ready for like they're about to do their shit again so i gotta come <laughs> yes. in there with like some yes. some ways to respond before and it catches honestly me off and honestly you will start to predict it because it honestly is a predictable behavior once you start to recognize the pattern it becomes mm, predictable and so at that point it should no longer frighten you it should feel less intimidating because you know you're prepared Right. You know you can expect it from that individual yeah. or someone that you will eventually meet in your life. And you have your, you know, your your couple responses. You've got them rehearsed. You've got them in your back pocket for when you need it. It's just like saying, you know, if there's something that a patient asks for, you say, well, you know, unfortunately, our clinic protocol is blank. We don't prescribe medications on the first visit. Whatever it is, you can make your rule whatever you need it to be. Whether or not it's actually a clinical rule, it doesn't matter. It's your boundary. It's something that it's the way you practice and you are allowed, you know, I mean, within reason, depending on where, what kind of space you're working in, you are allowed to set your own boundaries. Mm -hmm. Um, But for an individual that is saying, trying to manipulate the situation and say, well, you know, why can't you just do this? Like, it'll be fine. Or, you know, really trying to get their way when it's clear that you don't want to, but you haven't fully laid down the boundary is to just say, instead of saying no, just say, I simply can't, or it's just not possible. And don't apologize and don't say, well, maybe because you're leaving the door open, right? Any crack of the door that you leave, the boundary's not there. If you're saying, well, I don't know, I feel like that. No, mm-hmm. you have to stand firm in, in your power, but not power in a negative sense, right? Like empowered. Mm-hmm. Um, and knowing that in doing that, you are doing right by that other person, even if it doesn't feel like that to them, because that relationship 
is immediately more therapeutic because you are not enabling that behavior in them and you're not letting them put you in a compromising position. Mm. It's so tough for people that tend to be more agreeable in terms of personality traits, which tend to be the people who are empathetic, easy to get along with. <laughs> yes, hello, hello. Hi, hi everyone. <laughs> um, hello. <laughs> it tend to be easygoing, you know, uh, have a hard time saying no because no is always... It's potentially leads to conflict, right? Because what does no mean? No means no, right? And then <laughs> if the person c- continues anyway, then now there's the threat of like further conflict because no always implies something. Like no isn't just no. Uh, if someone's like insulting you and you say, no, I'm not taking this. If they keep insulting you, you have to almost progress the no in some in some sense. Mm-hmm. Um so it's always, uh, you know, a preliminary to to some kind of further conflict. And that's, I think that's what most people are afraid of, that when you say no, the other person will get upset and then that'll cause uh, issues. But that's yep. also an indicator of maybe you just shouldn't have that person in your life. Or like maybe when you that, say no, they flip out every time. It's like, and, is that And what I think that it is for me is... And I actually notice how much happier I am, ironically, or, you know, you wouldn't think that I would be happier feeling like I have better boundaries, but I'm much happier because it feels safer. Like we don't want to just be floating out in the ethers. That's why this quarantine time and everything that's being stirred up right now is so uncomfortable for people is that we don't know where the boundary of this is. We don't know when this will end. We can't plan. We can't make our boundary. We want to build a house and reside in it. And it's very difficult when we can't figure out the boundary of something because then we are literally floating out in the ether. Mm -hmm. So it makes me feel more myself when I am able to establish my boundary. And it's going to take, I mean, certainly new experiences present themselves, new conflicts present themselves, new opportunities present themselves to establish different flavors of your boundary, because this is all a trial and error situation. I had to figure out in romantic relationships what that looked like with a personality disorder. And now I know exactly what to look for. It doesn't necessarily mean that I won't be manipulated again, right? I mean, we want to see the best in people. We don't want to have conflict. We also don't want to be loners. So we don't want to completely cut off human connection either. Um, and I used to be much more of a yes person with patience, with agreeing to do a certain amount of work with relationships. I would compromise myself to try to give someone else what they needed and think that it was going to benefit me, and it never did. It almost never benefited me. And I ended up feeling exhausted and or resentful and or the conflict eventually came anyway. Mm. Or I I went through the experience, and then looking back on it, I was like, why did I even put myself through that? But I had Mm. to, to figure out what damage it did. And... um. When you don't say no when it's needed, you a lot of times resentment gets projected on that other person. Yeah, oh, totally. Which is so interesting how, how that is. 
Yeah. And I mean, I luckily in my clinical experience uh, in school, when I was a student, I had some great physician mentors who had such great boundaries. And I would say most of the time that did not alienate the patient where sure, there were some situations where it was very clear that the patient shouldn't have been there to begin with. Um, because they were trying to, they had malintent by seeking care of a certain type. And, but in most situations, it was like the therapeutic relationship continued with the patient. And, you know, a lot of times the physician was very clearly practicing horrible boundaries with the patient and the students had to sort of deal with that. That's unfortunate, but it made me realize, oh, this is exactly the opposite of what I will do when I am the one calling the shots. Mm. And just to, even though it felt harsh in the moment, you have to establish your own boundaries. And even if you kept a little journal of like, okay, I learned a new boundary today in these circumstances, this is sort of a default response that I can use if I feel like I'm at a loss for words. Um, and I honestly think we have to sort of be making lists of these because yeah. when we are faced with conflict and especially when it comes out of left field and we are not anticipating it, we get flustered. We don't know what to say. We freeze. And then something ha ends up happening and it happens how it happens. And it's probably not the version you were hoping for. And then you're like, oh, shit, how did I let this happen? And then you were thinking through all the things you should have said. But, you know, write a list to yourself and just keep mm. coming back to it and and adding to it and refining it and, and practicing in other situations and saying, okay, mm -hmm. I applied this in that situation and it worked great or that didn't work at all. I need to like think of a new game plan. But mm -hmm. there's a lot of different ways it can look. So obviously those are like my own examples of sort of what I figured out up until this point, but it is by no means over. This is like, this is a lifetime. It's just beginning every day. This is, this is literally just, and I mean, the thing is some days you just wake up and you're like, I feel more vulnerable. I feel more prone to being upset. I feel, or you're like, I feel nothing. <laughs> I feel so drained. I feel so apathetic. It doesn't matter what patients will say. Like, I definitely have those days too. So you sort of go back and forth. And I don't want to be either one. I don't want to be walking in completely um, vulnerable in the sense that the patient's going to walk all over me. I also don't want to be so cut off that I have compassion fatigue, which occurs mm -hmm. when physicians for one reason or another are burned out and it doesn't matter what suffering your patient's going through. You're just, mm. just sort of existing. You're not having a therapeutic relationship. You're not in a healing space. You are too burned out to care. That is not any good either. Mm. Um, and so I, finding that balance. I think also to have boundaries with ourselves, mm -hmm. right? Uh, to have boundaries with your own minds. Like these are the kind of thoughts that I will tolerate without questioning. And these are the kind mm -hmm. of thoughts that if I notice it, I just know that it's not helpful. So I won't believe it. Mm -hmm. Like our mm -hmm. own, our own thought 
streams or what really knocks us off our path probably more often than even other people. Cause it's like what we think of ourselves um, afterwards. So setting those boundaries on your own mind. Like one example is a boundary against complaining. Like the second mm-hmm. my mind goes to complaining, it's almost like you got to train yourself to recognize it. Almost like a physician, you, you recognize the, the illness right away, the second it comes up so that you don't, you know, fall into it because mm-hmm. it, it all progresses. You know, one, oh, today's going to suck leads to, oh, I got to do this and this is difficult. And then that just spirals into at the end of the day, you're just like in misery and it didn't have to be like that. And it never does. Mm -hmm. But um, with the boundaries, as with all things, you know, little baby steps, right? Yeah. And, you know, I think that one thing that... um, I had to sort of come to terms with as far as like talking about being a highly sensitive person, being an empath, making peace with that. Because there was a time in my life for years and years, I kept getting sick. And looking back, I think that it was a pivotal time in my life where I was growing up. Like I was no longer a teenager. I was like, okay, it's time to grow up, right? Like, sure, you had your fun in high school, whatever. It's time to like grow up and do what you were what you came here to do. But I went through these years where I was like chronically ill. And I remember being angry that, you know, comparing myself to what, you know, one of my friends, like, well, my friends don't get sick. My friends don't need to do this in order to feel normal. They don't need to do this, this, this. And I remember having a conversation with my mom about this because I was just so mad. I was so mad that I felt like I'm so sensitive. I get sick if I do this thing. And it took a lot to get me that sick. Like I was pushing my body, pushing, 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 probably hanging out with toxic people, doing toxic things for years. And finally my body was like, well, fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) But I remember this, I remember it very clearly because I'm here telling it to you now, which is my mom said, your sensitivity is not a curse. It is there as a tool. It is there to serve you and you just haven't figured out the gifts that it can bring yet, but you will. And sure enough, um, you know, I feel that, and this is another thing that I've noticed with sort of the empaths and the other highly sensitive, highly intuitive people that I have talked to is because you sort of find your own people, even though you attract the energy vampires, you do eventually find people who are highly sensitive like you and they get it. And especially if you go into you know, physicianhood and you're surrounded by people that also want to help people. And they are also highly intuitive people. Um, even if they didn't think that they were some, like they, they didn't even realize it, but, but they were, I mean, that's why they got into medicine. Mm. Um, at least that's why I think that that is, I mean, especially like alternative naturopathic Chinese medicine. Because that's what, you know, that it draws those kind of people because it's yep. not really the typical totally. paved road. So Totally. And you know what? I've met some crazy intuitive MDs as well. Mm. And um, you were telling me about your dad, who's a surgeon, and he just knew that that surgery had to happen and there was no quote unquote reason for it. He just had a feeling and that's what mm. that is. And um, I think that over time, 
empaths become even more intuitive with time and we have to give space for that. And the boundaries, setting up the boundaries allows us space to make sense of that, those messages when they come in. It's the same as being able to distinguish mm. your own thoughts and suffering from that of another. Mm. Um, is you have to you have to give the space for it, and um, and yes, I think that to a degree, you know, conflict and suffering brings us to a breaking point where we have a euphoric experience. We have an epiphany. Um, I think that that could be happening right now. Is there's so much pressure? There's so much suffering. There's so much sort of toxic stuff coming up mm -hmm. that it will, you know, people are finding that they're more intuitive, even with things that are happening now. Um, and who knows what will happen a few months down the road after a lot of this toxic stuff has been detoxed after you've taken the trash mm -hmm. out and there's, I don't know, there's, you've gone through that breakthrough of you hit a, you hit that breaking point of suffering or whatever that is in the moment. I've been conflict. finding that for my uh, for myself that uh, because of all the difficulty of these times, you know, all the stress, graduation time, you know, getting everything done, etc. It's actually made me actually find my way again. It's actually mm -hmm. reconnected me with my spirituality, my meditation, my mindfulness practices because they were a necessity. Mm -hmm. It's almost like when suffering gets to such a point where you have to grow or else mm -hmm. just devolve. The yep. necessity of it can can drive you actually into really great things like that um, euphoria or epiphany at the max point of suffering. I mean, ultimately, I guess the goal is to not have to get there. But a lot of times that's the only way to get there. You know? Well, yeah. And that's the only way to grow. Mm -hmm. And there's no way that even if we wanted to stay in our comfort zone and stay stagnant, like we're experiencing now, growth is thrust upon us and we can choose to either level up or be taken out with the trash. I mean, that is, mm. that is, that is how I see it. And I know that that's divided and it's extreme, but I don't think anybody's coming out of this the same. Right. It's, it's definitely moving in, in one or the other direction, it, we can't really stay stable. Either we're getting better or we're devolving. And we're always in this kind of cycle um, moving between the two. And I think to, to grow is to do something that you've never done before because it, it almost has to be a little bit scary or else it's not really growth because it's something that you already know. It's something you're already familiar with. And growth doesn't really come from that even that word is a little bit abstract but it's kind of like f with like exercise or weightlifting or something like that like to get really stronger you have to lift more than you think is possible for yourself and then when you do lift that you're amazed and then mm -hmm. do the same thing the next day except more mm -hmm. totally and then true. that's growth but it's always unpleasant because well not always necessarily unpleasant the default mode of the mind is to find it unpleasant. And if you go along with that story, then that's how you'll experience it. But if you have the mindset of I'm doing something difficult that I haven't done before, and I'm going to try to do it better, then that's a completely different mindset. It makes the pain so much more bearable. And it's, 
Well, it's like when I first, when I was trying to um, decide what to do next with my life before I went to, back to school and I thought, well, there's no way I'll go back to school. And I thought I had it all figured out. I thought like school is such a struggle. Why would I put myself through that? And I had a couple conversations with people saying, um, you know, one of them is a family, longtime family friend. And I was discussing like, well, but if I went back to school, like, you know, the program that I eventually finished and I was thinking, well, it's going to take at least four years and I'm going to be, you know, 33 when I'm done. And then my friend said, but you're going to be 33 anyway. And I was like, <laughs> mind blown. That's right. You, you, you could be 40 years old sitting on your couch all the time too. Like you're going to be gonna 40. Yeah. You're going to be 40 anyway. And I was just like, Oh my God. Like just that comment, little did he know. I mean, he did know it was super profound because that's just like the way he is, but he's like a stage like person. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I was just like, Oh my God. And it wasn't even that it wasn't like a flashy comment. It was like, you you are literally going to be the same age in four years, mm. whether you decide to do this program or not. And I was mm. not wanting to do it because I was like, well, it's a big undertaking and it's expensive and it's going to be difficult and all these things. But then once I made the leap and started going through it, I realized that, yeah, sure. There was, there was some growing pains, but then I realized the reward that I was getting out of each of those challenges, each step of the way through the program, I started to actually become like addicted to, it was like exhilarating to be like, Oh, look, I challenged myself. I overcame the challenge and now I'm at this next step. And Mm. then I can get this to this next step. If I take on the next challenge and each challenge felt more and more rewarding because I was in I was in the program and doing something that I really felt a connection with mm-hmm. it's clearly not going to be everybody's cup of tea but it was exactly what I was looking for and like the type of challenge and the type of unconventional and the type of um just variety that I was looking for within the training that it worked out so well to like constantly be challenging myself and having one breakthrough after another, after another. And I actually became stronger and stronger with each step. And it's interesting because now I don't look at at least academic or work type of struggle. I don't, fear it in the same way interpersonal stuff is different just because it's way less predictable humans are so unpredictable Mm -hmm. and weird um (laughs) but at least from like an academic standpoint like yes if you buckle down if you follow this if you figure this out you can do it um it became like i don't know it was just like i was building it up for no reason Mm. You know, and I think that we just have to find, we have to keep seeking and being curious. We can't settle for complaining and not being happy with something and then just letting it be our existence. Yeah. And, and you know, no one, no one's going to come save you if you're in a bad no. situation like that. I know. And that's really, I think that's actually the most difficult thing when you're maybe not feeling motivated or you're having a tough time is like realizing that like the longer you continue, the more you'll devolve. And there's, 
actually the longer you wait, the harder it'll be. Like the weight will get bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's all just an illusory weight. It's it's really it's really interesting how the mind works and that to and that if you actually do make like a habit of going out and trying to face your fears and, and searching for that growth, it'll actually get easier. It'll still be scary and it'll still be unpleasant and some days you won't want to do it. But then you'll realize that like what are your options? Either you go through just facing that suffering and that fear, or you'll have like a terrible day in another way. Like you're not going to get out of the suffering. There's no way to avoid it, but it's just a question of what's your, you know, mentality towards it. And I think even at the highest level from that more kind of sagely perspective is all of that's an illusion. I mean, most of our problems aren't really problems. Our problems are problems just because we don't see clearly. We don't see the future. We don't know the future. We don't know ourselves. We don't know what we're capable of. We don't really know how to go about it. We don't know what we don't know. So most of our problems can just be fixed by going for a walk barefoot, maybe getting some breaths in and realizing everything that you think is a problem. I mean, you never know which one is actually a true problem. And most of them aren't. Mm -hmm. Even if they are, they aren't. Interestingly, Mm -hmm. from like a mental perspective. Oh, yeah. I mean, from an existential perspective, it's like, what is really any of it? Right. Well, that's the, that's the ultimate point. It's like, <laughs> what problem is there other than inevitable death? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what, what's there to complain about in, in just terms of that? Like, right. if anything, that should be the ultimate complaint. Like, oh man, all this, and then it just ends eventually. Mm-hmm. Or does it? <laughs> or does it? Dun, dun, dun. On part three, we talk about the afterlife. I know, we've already, we already alluded to... <laughs> like the afterlife or at least recurrent <laughs> recurring lives yeah uh in part 1 but you know it's it's interesting too like it's interesting that the questions of the the meaning of life and the imminence of death they usually they usually come when you're suffering really mm-hmm. when you're like when you're engaged and you're living in life they don't they're not even considerations mm-hmm. um but it's like you need both poles because they're always like reorienting you. Because when things are good, you're kind of, you know, in the flow and you're kind of enjoying. And when things are hard, you question everything. Mm-hmm. You question mm-hmm. your fundamental choices. Um, and that's good. You should question your fundamental choices because right. maybe you're effing up hugely and you well, won't and, know unless it gets too bad. And things can't stay just flowing one direction. They have to, we have to evolve. I mean, that's the only way that we can evolve is we have to, you have to force that pressure cooker. Right. I mean, it's just, it's the way it's the pattern of all of our lives is things have gone. Okay. And then some shit goes down and then hopefully the coming out of that is better than it was before. Yeah. And that's the thing. There's no, there's no true easy path. You know, mm-hmm. there's just different kinds of difficult paths. There's difficult paths that are just devoid of meaning because they're not in accord with you. Mm-hmm. Or there's difficult paths that are filled with meaning because they are in accord with you. And that's really all that we can choose. I mean, the the challenge and the struggle happens regardless, but at least if you're on a path that you feel like you're moving towards something that's true to you, 
and you can reorient yourself to that constantly, this, this challenge is worthwhile. It's not like a debilitating uh, challenge. It's like that idea of um, like you stress, EU stress, uh, the good kind of stress versus the debilitating kind of stress. Mm -hmm. The stressor is the same, whether or not it's debilitating or actually enables you to get more resilient is your view towards it. Is this stressor going to destroy me and make me worse off? If you really believe that on a fundamental level, it will. And then Mm -hmm. you'll try to avoid it. And then more of those will come. And then that's just, you know, that's this whole own path. Um, But if you view it in the more challenge and growth oriented perspective and constantly basically re-propaganda yourself into truth, because like Mm. there's so much information about what is right, what is wrong that we pick up from people around us that isn't true. And even uh, as your friend was uh, said to you, one little quote of wisdom can completely change everything, completely change your perspective. So, you know, gathering up those little gems of wisdom and like playing them over in your mind and remembering the lessons and keeping track and, and things like that, they help a lot in turning, you know, something that might not be pleasant into something that is actually really fulfilling or at least keeping something unpleasant from being just like disastrously bad for you. Mm-hmm. Cause that's also possible. Cause that's where, it, you know, it tends to go. And especially during these times, I think it's really important to, to kind mm-hmm. of journey, journey within and, and find our, you know, find our peace in, in all this emotion, motion, um, uncertainty, all the good stuff <laughs> that gets the cortisol going. Yeah. It's, it's a wild ride for sure. Um, it's like, it's basically, yeah. it, you know how like some roller coasters go up, up and then go down. This has just been like a, just the, it's just like a down roller coaster the whole time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> just, oh, this is starting to get, Oh, this is exhilarating. Oh, it's starting to get. Yeah. Tired. Yeah. 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 <laughs> is this ever going <laughs> to slow down or stop? Nope. It seems to be accelerating, but maybe by design. Yeah, maybe. You know, I mean, what was I, expected to happen to some degree, you know, unemployment's at like 15% or something like that, people losing jobs, people dis- disconnected, isolated. Mm-hmm. Things are all bound Divided. to happen. It's the pressure cooker. Like you yeah. can't put such strain on people and not expect there to be, a, you know, a counter reaction. Or something yeah. to kind of trigger uh, spark something yeah. true and real, yeah. but sparking you know all that energy, and it's at the weirdest time too because the quarantine starts at the peak of the energy, like seasonally, mm-hmm. like spring mm-hmm. is like springing forth energy, mm-hmm. and in Chinese medicine, spring is associated with the liver and like almost like this directed growth, even aggressive energy. Mm-hmm. But what happens when you just push it down for like? two, three months, and then all this other stuff happens, then it just comes out in this crazy, you know, uncontrolled, chaotic way. Um, so we'll see where it all leaves us. But in the meantime, you know, we can be intentional with how we want to see things shift, whether it's for ourselves individually, or for our society, the whole world. I mean, it's a good time to put intentions out there and then do what we can in our everyday habits and thoughts and 
uh, practices just to give a little bit more energy toward making those things happen however we can get that done, you know? Um, it's a time to rebuild because big change is happening. I think a lot of good can come of it. Obviously, right now, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good. Um, even if one day feels okay, the next day doesn't feel as good. So right. we have to just, I think, take advantage of this momentum mm. somehow, you know? And that right. looks different for all of us. I mean, we're going to feel called to do different things. Mm. Remember to, you know, start practicing what your boundaries look like for you so that you don't burn yourself out. You know, there's no point in the purpose of existing isn't to just go from doing one thing to doing the next thing to doing the next thing. It's, you know, to have intention to feel connected to what you're doing, to have hopefully a positive impact on the people in your lives, in the world. And so, right. You know, having some intention and not just passively floating through life, um, avoiding difficult things just because us empaths want to avoid conflict. That's not always the best thing to do. Mm -hmm. And then having the compassion to yourself too, to Mm -hmm. uh, have, because like failure is inevitable, you know, like you're going to mess up because, but you only mess up if you try. So if you feel bad because you didn't, you know, do something in a certain way, you're halfway there because that means at least you're aiming for something. So just not giving up there and kind of reorienting yourself, doing whatever, you know, thing you need to do to recenter yourself and then, you know, keep on moving forward in your, in your direction. And I think that, uh, as you were saying earlier, um, you know, we can, as intentional as we try to be to say, to make what our message is sound acceptable to everybody. Obviously there's no way to please everybody. Mm. Even if we want everyone to be in harmony, we want everyone to experience brotherly love. We want everyone to reach their highest potential, but that's not the way. There's no simple answer. I mean, there's there's thousands of wisdoms for each of the life's difficulties. Exactly. And so even if it's true for you in you still have to do and say what is true for you. And in doing that, you will attract your people. And then the people that are not meant to be part of your circle, Mm. part of your life will fall away and circumstances will make that so. Mm. And um, I think that you know, for, for those of us who are highly sensitive individuals, we can't be, we can't be tiptoeing on eggshells anymore. We can't, we can't be afraid of putting up boundaries. We can't be afraid of, uh, saying something that might not resonate with somebody because there's no way to have one thing fit everyone. Mm -hmm. Everyone's, you know, Mm -hmm. it's not going to work for everybody. And that is part of how we move through life is taking with us what what is true to us and you leave behind the rest mm. and if we all do that as individuals then you know we define the lives that are best for us with the people mm. that are our people and it doesn't mean we don't still come into conflict and we have we affect each other and we force each other to grow, but it's, you know, don't just allow somebody to 
to throw toxic energy your way constantly mm-hmm. and just put up with it because you think everyone needs to just be shown yeah. love. Right? There's that secret uh, danger too of not expressing your truth is mm-hmm. if you do that habitually enough, you actually eventually won't even know who you are. Mm-hmm. Because everything make, is just you reactionary. might make yourself sick because you know you kept quiet. I mean, I know that disease can certainly manifest from not speaking your truth, from feeling like you have to control everything, from taking on the pain of the world. I mean, people become very sick because of stress and emotional circumstances. Mm. So we have to think of this as preventative medicine in. Mm-hmm living intentionally, um, Mm. you know, doing, living your truth and, um, sort of picking and choosing what you choose to, yeah, picking and choosing your thoughts, picking and choosing the people around you, picking and choosing the actions Mm -hmm. that you do, the, the news you choose to read or listen to or not. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, that's, I mean, we just have to kind of filter through things. You know, we can't experience everything. It's too chaotic. It's, it's too much. We wouldn't even be able to make sense of it if we were trying to literally experience everything Mm. and understand everything. That is not what it is here for. It is for us to choose our own adventures, Mm. our own individual adventures. uh, uh, Like wisdom is that it's, always true if it's wisdom of the minds you know you could be reading somebody who's having these thoughts about how to live a good life an orderly life and they're just as true now as they were two thousand years ago Mm. and those are those are the things that i now try to fill my mind with is like healthy positive useful thoughts Mm -hmm. not just whatever is there because there's so much that's there and, yeah. you know, you become what you absorb, basically. Um, yeah. And you don't really have much control over that. The only thing you have control over, I guess, is what you say yes and no to. Like, yes, I'll allow this person in my life. No, I won't allow that person. Yes, I'll allow this way of thinking into my life. No, I won't allow that way of thinking. Yes, I'll allow this book into my life. No, I won't allow that Netflix series into my life. Well, like, and like realizing how, um, how small, even if it feels insignificant, how we can manifest as long as we're not getting in our own way, we mm. can manifest and we start, start by doing things small. Like if you want to manifest money, you know, say, okay, I want to find $10 this week. And you know, it, it works. I don't know that it'll work immediately, but I've had enough experiences where little things like that are just the little reminders. They add up to be something significant because it's kind of like, you know, some something out there is getting that message, but you have to craft your intention in a certain mm-hmm. way, right. like whether it's being very specific or not, not immediately mm-hmm. counteracting that intention with, well, there's no way I can have that. So, and then immediately you get in the way of that. And embodying it and following mm-hmm. it through. That's like mm-hmm. the other half of the thing. Yeah. Um, manifesting, visualizing, but then actually believing that it's possible and then actually doing the things that you at least think or know that will bring you there. So it takes, takes this uh, being a human thing is, is a tough business. It's so weird. It's really (laughs) weird. 
It's very weird. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it's our particular circumstances, though. I mean, we live within society and culture. I'm sure if we just lived in some tribe in the woods, like we would have problems, but they would be of a completely different nature. Oh, yeah. You know, me- even just mental illness in uh, general doesn't really exist in the prevalence that it does um, in you know, Western society as it does in different civilizations, different, you know, tribal societies, mm-hmm. et cetera. Mm-hmm. So, all right. Well, we've been, we've been talking and we could talk. I feel like we just started getting really warmed up like two hours in. So oh let's do goodness. another one. <laughs> I'm down. Yeah. So this I is, know, I was uh, like, I don't even know what time what time it is but it is we've been at it for a little dr bit. angela hardin she's a naturopathic physician uh and resident at nunm the lovely school and i will soon be graduating from there and being cast off into the world of healing to embark on a sea journey on the tumultuous waters of 2020 <laughs> so i guess we'll do a part three then <laughs> <laughs> sure why not we're, we're, i'm here you're there yeah you know for now as the buddhists say For now, indeed.